Hello, I'm Nicola, Senior Investments Reporter at New Model Advisor, and today I'm joined by Jason Pitcock, CityWire Plus Rated Manager on the £1 billion Jupiter Asia Income Fund. Uh, Jason, thank you very much for being with us. How are you today? Very well, Nicola. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for for joining us. Um, So, Jason, obviously brilliant uh, year, brilliant three years um, for the fund. Uh, it's ranked as one of the top funds in Citywide's fund sector for its three-year performance um, with returns of around 34.6% over that time. Um, and also based on some analysis we did, uh, it's also one of the most popular funds that was purchased on uh, advisor seven advisor-led investment platforms um, in Q4 last year. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, if you could pick out a few points, what to what do you attribute the the kind of success of the fund among advisors um, more recently? I think the performance relative to the benchmark and to competitors is, is always key. Ultimately, that, that's what clients want. They want outperforming funds. I think also the fact that it offers a regular dividend income uh, has quite an attractive yield. Um, is appealing, and also the the ability to diversify your currency exposure, diversify away from sterling. So, um, particularly in, in markets that are growing faster than than, than the UK, uh, the UK's growth rate. So, it's it's a combination of, of reasons, and in a higher inflationary environment, I think people are looking for income and growth. Absolutely, absolutely. You sort of touched on this there as well, but um, to give listeners a bit more of a flavour of the fund, um, could you see it, say a bit about you know maybe a challenge and maybe also the biggest aid to um, investment performance that you've experienced over the past twelve months or so? Um, I'll start with the second first. So we, we we've we've done very well from our investments in India and Australia, uh, and just over fifty percent of the fund is in those two markets, with, with Australia being the larger of the two. Uh, we've had um, some individual stocks um, in the consumer sector in India, uh, in the commodities uh, sectors in um, in Australia, which have worked very well from an asset allocation point of view, being underweight China over the last three years has helped us a lot. Um, we've had companies with very strong balance sheets and therefore the, the the increase in interest rates hasn't been too much of a burden on the portfolio. Um, credit costs haven't caused uh, companies to, to have to raise fresh equity or, or get into operational difficulty. Um, I suppose the challenge, there's always challenges. You can you always think you could do better. Um, I did sell out of a, a Macau casino operator in July last year, which today is is at a much higher price and with wind with hindsight I shouldn't have sold it back then um but but actually over the last year three years not too many things have gone that wrong um so 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 we're, we're feeling pretty good about how the portfolio was positioned and feel very comfortable with how it's positioning now brilliant brilliant thanks jason um, and the the approach you take, you know, it's it could be descri- described as quite high conviction. Um, it's a portfolio of thirty one stocks. Uh, is that correct at the moment? Uh, uh, thirty. We're bang on thirty at the moment. Thirty stocks. Um, so quite high conviction. Why is that approach quite important to you? And when you're targeting uh, companies in in these regions, Th- thirty feels like the right number because it it means we we've, we've got enough stocks to give us a portfolio. 
across a number of countries. Uh, and we, you know, there are countries where we'll have three or four or five holdings. Australia is actually the biggest where we have 10 holdings at the moment. Um, but we have you know, a handful in places like Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, India. Um, but we want we want to be focused. We want each stock that we buy to have a meaningful weighting in the portfolio so that it can make a difference to performance if it does well. So when we first buy into a stock, we'll put at least 1% of the portfolio into it. Um, and with, with 30 holdings, the average unit size is about 3.5%. And the most that we'll put in at purchase is 7%. So that, that's kind of the range. Um, and we have found over the last few years that it, it's been our larger weighted holdings, which should typically have done better. So our top 10 holdings, which clearly are the most important ones, uh, generally have had uh, a good run. That's really interesting. Thanks for kind of explaining that. Um, you mentioned obviously the larger positions um, in in companies in Australia and India at the moment, um, particularly um, commodities, that sector in Australia. Could you touch a bit more on on um, those positions at the moment and why in the current environment you, you feel those are um, beneficial? Yes, it's partly a hedge because we don't have any exposure to mainland China, uh, but China's economy is picking up at the moment because of that because they abandoned the zero covid policy towards the end of last year we recognize that we still don't want to invest in mainland chinese businesses because we're uncomfortable with the political system of china but we're happy to get exposure to china's growth indirectly and we have a lot of businesses around the region that will sell goods and services into china uh, and in australia it, it, it'll be the mining companies so companies selling iron ore um, and other materials like lithium. We have increased uh, our exposure to lithium recently, which um, benefits from greater production of uh, EVs, electric uh, vehicles. Um, we do recognize that commodity uh, commodity prices will be volatile. They are cyclical, uh, and we do have other cyclical sectors in the portfolio, such as technology. Um, but we that's why we have a whole portfolio. So we'll have companies, a lot of companies with a lower beta and uh, where there's less volatility. And then that gives us comfort to have some uh, that, that are more volatile. Um, but companies like BHP, Mineral Resources have, have done quite well over the last few years. Uh, this year, our best performing stock has been Newcrest Mining, which is a predominantly a gold miner, but copper makes up quite a big part of what they sell and they were they've been bid for by Newmont of the US um, and for that reason and the fact that the gold price has moved higher to close to two thousand dollars an ounce their share price has has done pretty well interesting that's really interesting Jason so would you say with with some of those uh companies in in that kind of sector um it's a situation where they weren't seeing any uh downside you know they were still performing well in your portfolio when when china was a bit, was a bit more kind of uh, closed as an, as an economy uh, than it is now but now that it's reopened um you see the potential for upside because of the exposure those those companies have to to the chinese economy is that does that sound fair um yes broadly the, the key when investing in cyclical companies is to make sure they have a strong balance sheet so that they can get through the tougher times 
um, more easily and that they have a relatively low cost of production so that they remain profitable even when prices are lower. And that's certainly the case with BHP, for example, which has long-life low-cost assets and is profitable through the cycle, has a high dividend yield, and even when it needs to cut its dividend from time to time, the yield actually stays stays pretty firm. Um, clearly, last year, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you had interruptions to commodity flows around the world, uh, and even when even before China opened up, um, there were a number of commodity prices that, that were doing relatively well because of the, the short-term disruption in supply. That's interesting. Thank you. Do you own many uh, stocks in the portfolio or have you owned many stocks in the portfolio that um, are cyclically exposed and uh, maybe maybe there's greater risk there uh, when, when it's a less kind of uh, beneficial market environment for them. You know how. So I guess the question is, how how willing are you to 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 place bets on on a company that might um, be a bit more in that situation? So we we do look through the cycle, and we 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 are long term investors. Our average annual turnover is roughly twenty percent a year over over a rolling five year period. Um, so even with cyclical businesses, if we think through the cycle, they will perform. Uh, we can be willing to own them and recognize that profits will have ups and downs and to a lesser degree, because of the companies we're investing in, dividends will have ups and downs. Samsung Electronics is a good example. Recently, they announced a plunge in their profitability. Um, profits fell by over 90%. We we think we're at the lowest point of the cycle and that from here on, they will recover. Clearly, they were overproducing um, the the type of chips that they sell, uh, they have now said that they will rein in um, production. Um, and that, that seems to have caused um, a, a bit of a pickup in, in, in pricing. Um, so with Samsung, there's volatility in the share price, but over the long term, we still think it's a good, a good position. Back in the third quarter of 2020, we, we could see that inflation was going to going to increase across the board. And we looked through the whole portfolio and we, we thought a lot about pricing power. So we knew that costs would go up um, for most of the companies that we invest in. Um, but we, we wanted to be confident that companies would be able to pass on those cost increases via higher prices to their customers. And that by and large was the case. We went overweight consumer staples um, for quite a period. We have trimmed that in the last nine months or so, but that that worked for us, and we 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 reduced exposure to consumer discretionary um, because we thought a cons- um, more discretionary items would would be squeezed because customers' wallets would be squeezed by higher inflation, and and, and more recently is because we think in the second half of this year there is going there's likely to be a, more of a, a global slowdown in economic growth, and that that won't be good for for consumers. So we do increase and decrease our weightings in sectors. I'm not saying that because we take a long-term view, we don't ever do any buying or selling, um, but we're not traders. So we, 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 we you know, our, our turnover is, is less than, 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 than many other investors. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit about your, your, your kind of stock picking process. Um, but in addition, um, 
you do take into account uh, macroeconomic factors. They do carry weight in your investment decisions. I just wondered in your experience, Jason, um, how much can uh, macroeconomic factors impact investment performance? And why do you think it's important that that actually plays a key part in your investment uh, strategy? I think it's enormously important, particularly when investing in a region like Asia. Um, and we've seen in the last few years that macroeconomic factors have been the biggest single determinant of how markets have done. Um, the, 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 the slump in in activity during the, the worst period of COVID, um, the, the Russians' invasion of Ukraine last year, um, and the, the pickup in inflation, the increase in interest rates, uh, these have a, an enormous um, factor on how value how companies are are valued and and the sh- how valued they are over the medium term, but also their shorter term uh, operational uh, position. So we 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 describe ourselves as top down stock pickers. We try and have a good understanding of the macro environment uh, that businesses are operating in, and that means understanding the economic environment, the political environment, and that means domestic politics as well as geopolitics. And we keep an eye on what's going on around the rest of the world, even though all of our investments are in in Asia. So we're looking at what bond yields are doing, global infl- inflation rates, trade flows, and things like sanctions, um, geopolitical tension, and increasingly thinking about which countries will be more vulnerable to greater environmental risks. So, and that's one of the reasons why we tend to be underweight many of the countries in Southeast Asia, uh, because we think they could be more vulnerable to rising sea levels and greater frequency of severe storms, particularly the poorer countries who are less able to adapt to to, to things. So, um, yeah, top a, a top-down perspective is is very important. That doesn't mean we're trying to forecast next year's GDP growth rate or what currencies are doing. Um, so it's a bit more nuanced than that. That's interesting. Thanks, Jason. Um, you touched on the fact that you exited, um, I think, the fund's final position in China last August uh, in in a in a Chinese company. Um, what was the rationale behind that decision? Yeah, so there was it was it was in July. There were three mainland Chinese businesses. The last three that we owned, we had been underweight China for some time, and we we had been cutting our China waiting progressively even in the two years prior to that. So we by July last year, we, we were down to about 6% in mainland China. And we also had one uh, stock, which was a Macau casino operator. And we, we sold out of the four of those together, really because of concerns over the, the political system in China, so domestic politics, the, the, the way things were going, but also the geopolitical relations with the West, particularly the US, which of course is related to to, to domestic politics. Um, and you know, we could hear what uh, heads of security services in countries like the US and the UK were saying, how they were describing China, politicians were saying, we could see that sanctions uh, were going up, we could see that the US was barring US investors from investing in certain stocks in China. Basically, all of the tele- all of the listed telecom stocks and a number of tech companies. We thought there was a risk that that list would only increase, and that every time there was a significant election uh, in the U.S., where there was um, for, for the for Congress or presidential, 
politicians were perhaps trying to outdo each other to sound like they were tougher on on China or not not want to be seen to be weak on China. Um, now, combined with the fact that there are so many opportunities around the rest of the region, there are so many countries that are functioning democracies where we just are more comfortable with the, the political system, where they have uh, the, a kind of a rule of law that we would recognize, where there's an independent judiciary. Uh, we thought that there just isn't any need to take the risk to investing in directly in mainland Chinese businesses where the goalposts could be changed any time and there's there's no effective way to appeal that. Uh, we would rather invest in companies based elsewhere, but as I said earlier, many of those do sell into China. So they benefit from China's demand, from China's the size of China's economy, which of course is by far the biggest in the region um, and, and second biggest in the world. Um, so for us, that's enough. And it, you know, we feel it's, it's actually been working. That's been a sensible approach. Just on, so, so I think particularly with the, um, concerns about China and military aggression in Taiwan, um, given that the Taiwanese Strait is quite a major global trade route, I just wondered if there were any concerned on your end, concerns on your end about the impact on, um, you know, an attack in that area on actually global equity returns and and the performance of the um yeah of, of, of markets globally more broadly um is that a kind of legitimate concern that you think fund managers should be thinking about absolutely we have to think about all risks um and some risks even if likelihood is minimal or at least hopefully minimal if they occur the event would be dramatic and, and so you have to course think about those we don't expect china to do anything dramatic in the next 12 months but we're keeping a rolling review of that and if if at any point there was a higher chance then we probably would reduce our weighting in um the three stocks that we own in taiwan which are very very liquid um and at the moment we're happy with them we think the valuations are good they have extremely strong balance sheets and attractive dividend yields. Um, we're very slightly overweight Taiwan today, but less overweight than we have been in the past. Now, if an event occurred, of course, Chinese equity prices would collapse. And there we have, in mainland China, we have no no exposure. We have three stocks in Hong Kong, but we, we think of them as proper Hong Kong businesses as opposed to Chinese businesses listed in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, so what is... If what are the options? The option is that the status quo remains as it has for decades, and that would probably be the best thing. Some people are saying that there could be an economic blockade by China rather than the use of missiles, etc. Um, if that happened, that would that would still be very damaging to the global economy, and and I think it would cost China a lot of goodwill. And they still wouldn't have territorial control. So, if they prevented ships and other uh, exports getting out of Taiwan and prevented uh, raw materials getting in, uh, they would upset a lot of other countries because very quickly we would all feel the economic impact of that. Um, if they did something even more dramatic, it would be have a much bigger impact on the global economy than Russia's invasion of Ukraine because we are so reliant on ships coming out of 
Taiwan and, and the supply of those would 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 seize up. Um, it's not as if China could go quickly and keep up that production. Um, but their their access to the machines that they that these fabs these foundries constantly need uh, would would diminish uh, rapidly. So we have to hope nothing happens or that the status quo continues. Uh, but of course, it's a political decision, and in China, there's one single person who, who every day, effectively makes that decision not to do something dramatic. Um, if something happened, then we would expect there would be equities in, across the region and globally would fall. But but in terms of relative performance, we think countries like India would be um, relatively defensive because they're more of a domestic, more of a closed uh, economy. Um, and even even somewhere like Australia, which might the, the, bulk of the biggest share of its exports, of course, go to China. But we think Australia would be um, would do relatively well compared to other countries in Northeast Asia. Uh, and some even in in Southeast Asia. So, yes, we, we, we of course we have to think about this. Um, but for the moment, we think the that any rational person would 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 see that the risks are simply too high for for everybody concerned. That's really interesting, Jason. Thank you. Um, so obviously, that's a bit about um, the impact on global global markets. Um, but just turning again to to the regions that you're focused on, um, how important and how kind of common is it for the companies in your portfolio to be having a bit of an emphasis at the moment on regional diversification? Um, is that and is that something important to you uh, when you're when you're selecting companies? Yes, I mean that, that quite a lot of diversification is going on from companies who had been quite dependent on production and sales in China. So there's there's a, the, a new tra- strategy which has been named China Plus One, where maybe American or European com- companies, instead of just having uh, operations in China, will now have will select another country in in Asia. And it, it it's not as if one other country is is benefiting from all of the diversification away from China. It, it's being spread about, but uh, certainly countries like. Vietnam and India uh, have benefited. So Apple, for example, has been increasing phone production in India, partly because it's a low-cost place that can be produced for export sales, but also because of the large domestic economy. Uh, Vietnam, for some time, has benefited from um, uh, uh, capacity people don't want to put into China, and they're Wage wage levels are still low enough to be to be competitive. Um, certainly, a lot of the businesses we own, like our Singaporean stocks, have um, sales across Southeast Asia. So, mm. we, preference in terms of getting exposure to sa- the whole of Southeast Asia is really via the companies we own in Singapore. But we do have one Indonesian and one Thai uh, business in uh, Thailand. Um, but the Australian portfolio that we have is a mixture. So some of the companies are inherently domestic demand, and Australia's economy is one of the fastest developed, uh, fastest growing developed economies in the world. Uh, but we and so some companies we own just sell in Australia. Some sell 
across the Asian region, and, and some are true multinationals and, and are selling all around the world. Uh, but we think that many global investors still underappreciate the growth story of Australia, which is largely driven, or in a, in a big way, it's not the only way, but largely dri- driven by very high rates of immigration of wealthy and or skilled people. And in the last 12 months, 650,000 people have turned up in Australia from elsewhere who can contribute to the economy from the moment they step off the ship um, because they're of working age or they've already accumulated a, a lot of reasonable amount of money. Now, that's on a population of 25 million people. So it is a key driver. And from a percentage point of view, Australia has one of the best demographic uh, pictures of any country in the world. Population is growing faster in percentage terms than that of India, for example. Um, and also because you don't have to wait 20 years from the birth of someone to their ability to contribute to the economy, uh, it, it, it happens at a, at, a, at a faster rate. Brilliant. Thanks, Jason. Um, so just one final question before we finish. Um, I guess, uh, so recently the Jupiter Asia Fund uh, was merged into your fund. Um, I just wanted to ask you um, how those assets will be invested. You know, will be they be sort of spread across the fund or um, are you looking to kind of um, be a bit more, yeah, I suppose, harness them in a bit more of a bullish or sort of tactical way? It didn't make any difference to the weightings in the portfolio. Prior to the merger, we'd um, aligned the two funds. So the two funds had identical portfolios immediately before the merger. So when it happened, uh, the, the, the main Asian income funds simply got larger, but none of the underlying weightings of any of the stocks actually changed. So most had, it was almost non-effect. It was just like having a 4% inflow, which was pro rata invested across the board. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks, Jason. And just quickly, um, looking to the year ahead and, and into 2024, um, you mentioned, again, large positions in India and Australia, you think those look re- really advantageous at the moment. So are there any other um, uh, advantageous moves that you uh, are sort of looking towards in the year ahead? And, and, and what are those? So beyond Australia and India, the other markets where we're overweight are Taiwan and Singapore. Uh, we have a broadly neutral weighting in South Korea. Um, and then the other markets are, are quite a bit smaller. So we're, we're a touch overweight um, uh, Indonesia, but but it's still, we only have one stock there and it's quite a small weighting. I think one um, something to consider for later in the year is when to add more to consumer discretionary stocks and when to add more to the tech sector. Uh, we're not in a hurry to do that right now. Um, and it could be that we get a better opportunity. Valuations come, come, come down a bit if we get some economic weakness globally in the second half of this year, which we think is quite likely because in the short term, we will see a few more interest rate increases. Um, but they, that, that will, there is a, a lagged effect to those uh, and those that have happened already. Uh, and so we think in the second half of this year, there, there will be a slowdown in, in the US economy. Uh, it'll get tougher again for some economies in, in Europe and, and the knock-on effects of, of lower demand from those will, will impact exporters around the world, which, which will include 
some countries in Asia. Now, equity markets are always forward-looking, and that's not saying that's not saying this hasn't been taken into account by other people. I'm not, not saying that, um, but um, we right now we feel pretty happy with how the portfolio is positioned. Brilliant. Well, uh, Jason, that was really interesting hearing from you today. So thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any questions about this episode, you can email me. I'm Blackburn at citywire.co.uk. Or feel free to get in contact on Twitter. We're at New Model Advisor. Thanks again, Jason, and everyone for listening. Thank you, Nicola.